Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to the Badge Boys, a show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Checkerly. And each week I say this, we have a great guest and a great show. And, a, and this one is a great it's story. It's always true. Uh, it, it is. It is. It, we, oh gosh, it's all about the guests. It really is. The show is all about the guests. Um, they do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> that, yes, that's for sure. <laughs> and we have not just a retired cop, not just a retired cop, not just a retired service member with the Coast Guard. He was a, a warrant officer with the Coast Guard. Uh, but he is a historian. And he is a prolific writer. We have Oakley Dean Baldwin. And I hesitate with Baldwin because he's going to tell a story about the Maitwan Massacre and about this Blair Mountain War between the coal miners and the coal mine company. And police were on both sides of this issue. You had some, and again, I don't want to get you know go into the lead, uh, but it is a riveting story. I do want to uh, read just so that people understand a little bit before we start. Uh, the Battle of the Blair Mountain was the largest violent labor uprising in U.S. history, and the largest armed uprising since the Civil War. The conflict occurred in West Virginia as part of the Cold Wars, a series of early 20th century um, disputes where more than 100 people were killed. For five days in 1921, some 10,000 armed coal miners confronted 3,000 lawmen who were backed by the um, coal mine, uh, and they were trying to stop the unionization. The battle ended uh, after approximately one million shots were fired. Insane. And it it's insane. one of the best-kept secrets. More, again, more officers died during this conflict than any other time until 9-11. These are the kind of stories I love to learn about, the, the history part. Not, not that I'm glad it happened. It's fascinating. Just, it is. It, and this is what we should do is always continue to educate ourselves. And no matter if it happened 200 years ago, 100 years ago, or yesterday, you can learn and be Thank better you. from it. We need, especially yeah. now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every time of yeah. uh, civil unrest, my God. So without further ado, I want to welcome uh, again, Oakley Dean Baldwin to the show. Uh, Oakley, thank you for joining us on Badge Boys. My pleasure, fellas. Uh, the first question goes to Jason. It goes to the heart of law enforcement. Always, Oakley, I got to ask, why did you ever put your name on the application? Well, first of all, let me thank both of y'all for your service, too, in uh, law enforcement. Thank you, sir. Back in um, 1978, I put an application in with the West Virginia State Police Department, not expecting to even be picked up. And about three days later, I found myself in the State Police Academy uh, oh. for six months, and that was a thrill. Well, they weren't messing around. Three days. <laughs> you must. Uh, you must you have a pretty, them. pretty good resume. <laughs> yeah, I think either that or pretty lucky. <laughs> and you also have a stellar career, and one might even argue even more stellar award-winning career with the Coast Guard as a warrant officer. And thank you for your service, sir. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What got you into the Coast Guard? Well. 
after 9-11, um, I always had an interest in the military. And the opportunity came up for me to join the reserves in 1983 after the, um, the terrorism attacks that were going on all over the world. And I was fortunate enough to make rank of CWO4. And my last five years, I was the uh, intel officer for Sector North Carolina. And for about 13 years, I was a boarding team member on a small boat, law enforcement boat in Moorhead City. You know, being an intel officer, that probably served you well with your love for uh, writing and research. And uh, having read your book, and, and I loved this book, uh, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, the Make One Effect, Bloody Mingo, Mingo being the county. Am I right, sir? Yes, sir. And you got it right earlier when you said that's the best kept secret in West Virginia. It, it really? I mean, the only reason I was sharing this with my dear friend Jason, the only reason I know of this story is because I love films. And there was a film called Mate One. It was directed, written, hell, even starred John Sayles. It's a really good film. But what was interesting about that film is that there was um, – the good guys and bad guys. You either wore a white hat or a black hat. The the white hat, the good guys were the uh, union organizers. It was the poorly treated coal miners, which is true. I mean, they're hardly treated. You'll get to that point. But in that film, Mate One, you could see definitely this this simplified vision of that war or that battle, specifically as it made as. It, if, um, relates to Mate One Massacre, which is kind of like a prelude. But correct me if I'm wrong, it really wasn't that simple. There was good and bad on both sides. Am I over or am I way off the mark? No, you're right on. I think you nailed it. Having both of my grandfathers and my wife's grandfathers were coal miners in Ningo and McDowell and Marshall County at, at, and after that time, for probably 40 year period, um, we both saw firsthand, my wife and I, how the miners struggled with um, safety rights, OSHA concerns, and those types of things. And when I think about West Virginia, I think about the time in the 20s when this all came down. I mean, as I talked about the uh, Blair Mountain War, it was 1921. Five days was horrific, one million shots. But I think it helps understand the type of people that we're, we're dealing with. It was kind of like the Hatfield and McCoys in the sense that people had guns. We, there wasn't a lot of actual true police officers. Um, can you talk a little bit about the type of individuals that were involved in this unrest? A lot of the miners had come back from World War I in 1919. So they were used to battle. Um, the West Virginia State Police, was they were actually incorporated because of all the violence in the coal mine in and actually uh, started in June of 1919 with just a superintendent and one state troop. By the end of the year, they had to staff up to 121 men because of all the violence. All the coal miners that wanted to join the union, but the coal company owners were uh, resistant. And when we, we talk about Matewan uh, being this catalyst, uh, and again, I, I treat as a catalyst because it was a horrific event that occurred and again the movie kind of makes it look like the individual by the name of uh Sid Hatfield was the hero and he was uh, just a good guy who cared about the miners cared about his town um uh, but he was a Hatfield and he he liked guns and uh can you talk about that individual and the town of Matewan? Yeah you have to remember Matewan 
uh, runs along the Cub River with Kentucky. And all of the Hatfield and McCoy stories that you've heard about, read about, happened right there. Some of them actually in Maitland. So you've got the Hatfield and McCoy going on at a 20, 30 year battle between themselves. And then you've got the Tug River, and then you've got the town of Maitland right there, right over the bridge. And as far as uh, Sid Hatfield, talk about him as the police chief of this kind of close-knit mining town. Yeah, he had a reputation of being a, a tough guy. He had no real law enforcement experience, but he was uh, a former coal miner himself. So he definitely was 100% uh, behind the coal mine uh, organizations. Uh, fighting for the unions to unionize the coal mines to, for better treatment for the miners. And all that kind of goes with the film in terms of he wore a white hat. He was a good guy who cared about his town, cared about his people. He had no alternative motive. Um, but that may not be completely 100% true. So before you get into that aspect, if you will, uh, talk about the coal mine company and how they ran roughshod which again was depicted in the film quite beautifully because they weren't paid money, were they? They were practically paid monopoly money. Can you talk about that and the rough conditions of the coal miners, not just in the mines, but making a living? Yeah, this particular mine was owned by the Coal Mountain Mine Company, but there were many other New River and Pocahontas coal companies in the area. They paid the coal miners what's called strip, uh, which was made of uh, aluminum, pieces of um, copper, just metal that they formed and pressed into coins. So if you got in trouble at one particular coal mine and wanted to leave, let's say you were at the New River coal mine and you wanted to go to the Big Stone Mountain or you wanted to go to um, one of the others, you had no money. They wouldn't take your money. So you basically were a slave. Yeah, it's like Monopoly money. You know, it's great if you're playing Monopoly. It doesn't help you if you're playing, you know, uh, Parcheesi. Uh, so, so, so you had the, the mine company kind of, and, and they also owned their homes. They, they, the, their homes that they were living in were owned by the company. So if you, you couldn't just leave the job, you had to suck it up buttercup. The problem is the conditions were so bad. People were dying in the mines. Yeah, that's correct. There wasn't any OSHA rules like we have today for safety. You could work a miner 12, 14, 16 hours a day and they couldn't complain about it. They didn't get paid overtime. They didn't have the roofing protections for falls and, and uh, slips and those type of things. A lot of miners were getting killed on the job and they would just bury them out in a graveyard. There wasn't any type of compensation for the family, no uh, lawsuits against the company. There was a list of just terrible things that were happening to the miners at that time. I love how you talked about the, the literally the tombstone and their burial, which the company would take up, but they were considered property. They were like a shovel to the point where their names weren't even on the tombstones. What was on their tombstones? Basically their tag that they took in the coal mine had a number on it. And if the, at the end of the shift, if the tag wasn't on the board at the end of the shift and they knew that they had a miner missing, and um, they would go in looking for them if they, if they found them and if they had been killed by a slide or a um, collapse or whatever, they would just take that number and assign that to a stone. 
insane. I mean, literally, you're just a number. And, and the family, and the, it was generational, generation after generation after generation. So it's clear there was a fraught for abuse based on the company. So right now, it sounds like they are the black hats. You know, they're the bad guys. And the, the, clearly, the miners living in these horrible conditions have every reason to want to kind of unionize and try to protect each other. That all makes sense. But it kind of went bad and, and went south because of this um, the way the, the mine company would bring in these um, uh, hired guns. Can you talk about that? Because these are, if you will, police officers. We wouldn't consider it today, but back at the, in that time, the coal mining company brought in these, the Baldwins, or the Pinkerton. A lot of people understand what the Pinkerton detective agency was back in the 30s and so forth with the railroads and so forth. Um, the Baldwins were their hired gun, but they were if you will, lawmen. They had the power of arrest. They had the power of eviction. Can you talk about that? Yeah, almost all the Baldwin detective agents were uh, deputy sheriffs or city police officers in other municipalities and organizations. So they were trained lawmen and sworn to where they could actually carry concealed. They could pack weapons wherever they went in the state. The um, Pinkertons, like you mentioned, were out west. The Baldwins were on the east side before the FBI. That's who you went to if the local sheriff didn't do their duty. In this case, in Mingo County, Sheriff George Blankenship refused to serve the papers. And that's why they called the Baldwin then to serve the eviction papers on the coal miners that had joined the union. And you, you segue perfectly to where we're going to go, which is that Mate One massacre. Uh, I can't tell you when it was in April. I know you know uh, of, of 1921. Uh, but can, can you kind of tell us what really occurred if you watch the film mate one it looked like everything occurred in that film uh on the uh, railroad steps uh in fact the cover of the uh theatrical artwork is is pretty much what the film shows it all happened out on the railroad it was uh all done based on the heavy-handedness of the coal miners um um henchmen or or you know gunmen the baldwin detectives uh but what really occurred that day well, when Sheriff Blankenship decided he would not serve the writ of eviction, and the Baldwins were called from down from Blueville, they got on a train. You couldn't drive a car and make one at the time. They were called down. They took, they took the uh, morning train. There was 12 detective agents, uh, agents or detectives. They got in three cars that were pre-assigned to them drove about a mile out of town to the rented coal mine home and they papers to set out six and it was five in case they were expecting a little trouble and they set out six families into the rain. And we're having a little bit of video difficulty. Um, what I heard was you talked about the, how they boarded the train. You had these detectives. They all came in, mate one. Um, they were going to, um, but talk about Sid Hatfield as it relates to um, any type of arrest situation, whether it was Sid was going to arrest somebody or somebody might have been wanting to arrest Sid. Can you kind of start from there? Yes, the lead detective for the Baldwin was Albert Belt. He actually went to a magistrate named Stafford and obtained a warrant in case Sid Hatfield tried to interfere. Because you have to remember, these evictions did not happen in the town of Maitland, where he was the police chief. They happened out in the county, in Mingo. So he was approached by uh, Sid, and then it really hit the fan. 
And so he was approached by these uh, lawmen on the other side of this issue. They were by for the uh, the company and the police chief of Matewan, which is Hatfield, um, was met. And and what happened? How did the shooting start? Well, after the eviction, the Baldwins came back in about three o'clock in the afternoon, and they got dinner at the Urias Hotel. They paid Anderson Hatfield, who was the owner for their meals, and nine of the Baldwins packed their rifles up, took them apart and packed them up on their suitcases, and they started heading to catch the 515 train out of town. Three of the Baldwin men had 38 pistols, which were carry concealed. Um, Albert was approached by the mayor. He wanted to see the eviction papers. His name was Cable Tester. They walked under the patio or porch of a hardware building and that's when it all broke loose. There was probably 200 people standing around and Sid told a whole group of coal miners to go home and get their weapons and wait for his signal. And what was that signal? Talk about that signal. Well, this is where it gets, the story gets real fuzzy. The eyewitnesses that I list in my book, there's three or four of them, saw Sid pull out his 44 Magnum and shoot Albert Phelps through the head, killing him instantly. Then he turned his weapon on the mayor and shot the mayor twice in the gut. Even though the mayor and, and the chief were on the same side. <laughs> right. So please then, continue. Yeah. And then the uh, coal miners, some of them up on the roofs of the building, opened fire on the uh, Baldwin detectives that were standing waiting for the train. So it was calculated, it was planned, it was pre-organized by, if you will, the police chief in terms of having gunmen, which were the miners that were wanting to unionize, on the, on the rooftop. So now they've kind of became the bad guys in a sense. A am I kind of overstating that, or is, is that what the kind of evidence looks like? Now that's what the evidence shows. The Two of the telephone operators that overheard the conversation with Sid when he called the deputy sheriff um, of Mingo County. He told them that they were going to they would kill all of the Baldwin detectives before they left town. That all came out during the hearing. Yeah, and what also came out in the hearing is that the bullet in uh, our our fine mayor, who by the way had a beautiful young wife. Uh, by all accounts, she was beautiful and young. He was in his forties. She was in her twenties, if I remember right. Um, the mayor had a 44 slug in him based on even back then ballistics because no one else had a 44 except who? Just Sid Hatfield. That's right. The police chief is the only one that had the 44, which was in his gut. And the reason that's suspicious is because uh, at some point um, the mayor dies. Um, the police chief survives this massacre. The most, the massacre was really what the nine de detectives, the bald ones that were shot and killed, maybe a few of the miners. But um, the police chief then marries. And who does he marry? Well, the uh, Baldwin detective lost seven that day. Thank during you. During the first valley of, of, the, of, the, of the shots fired. Then um, one actually hid in a trash can all night and got out and swam across the Tug River to safety. And a couple got on the train and left with the 515 and mingled with, with the crowd. There was Bob Mullins, one of the miners, was shot and killed. Pop Tinsley, 
another 18-year-old minor was shot and killed, and then the mayor. So there was 10 people actually shot and killed that day from the massacre. Gotcha. And then uh, what kind of life did um, our police chief, Hatfield, have immediately following that massacre? Well, he became a celebrity and a hero to the miners, partly because the Baldwins had a, a thug reputation by the United Mine Workers Association. But um, I think it was 10 or 11 days later, our hero, Sid Hatfield, was caught in a hotel room with the mayor's wife, the widow, Jesse Testament, in Huntington, West Virginia. And he was arrested and charged with illegal cohabitation. Yeah, so basically our good police chief, who's the hero of the town, who saved the Myers and killed uh, or, or organized the killing of these uh, um, lawmen, the Baldwin, even though they were heavy-handed, no doubt about it, um, he ends up uh, having sex with the, uh, the widow of the mayor in the hotel room and then is forced to basically marry her to avoid prosecution. Am I getting that right? Right. They married the next morning in front of the <laughs> So they married the next morning. So uh, I, I don't think he really has that white hat. Um, so now you have this, this almost this good feeling for the town, like they took care of business, they got rid of the Baldwins, but that's not really what occurred, is it? Because very shortly, uh, the state comes in and wants to take control of Mate One. Am I right? Now, the next day, 20 troopers tried to come down on the train and it was about 300 coal miners. They were pretty excited, so the train never even stopped. They went on to Williamson, got 20 more deputy sheriffs, came back later that day. That's 40 lawmen to try to calm the, the uh, excitement and make them. Yeah, so they take over the town. Now the town is back in control of the state. Um, we're talking about martial law. And now the the death of the um the baldwin um detective and the the sheriff that was you know that received the first shot in the head as well as the mayor who they believe was killed by um the police chief he the police chief is now even though he's married the the mayor's widow he's looking at some um repercussions legally can you talk about that yeah, he was uh, terminated as the police chief of Maquan, but he he became the um, a um, police officer through the Magnolia District. He was elected um, sort of like a district marshal, so he was still a uh, certified law enforcement officer, even though he wasn't the police chief anymore. But between that time and August of 21, where he had to go to trial, he was um, uh, the Mingo County. Uh, grand jury um, brought charges against him for the murder of Anderson Hatfield, who had been the owner of the hotel, Urias Hotel, where the Baldwin stayed at that day and ate dinner. Um, he was shot and killed on his front porch in August, just three months. He had testified against it, and they found him murdered on his front porch. Yeah, so you had a police chief, you had a police chief who uh, was suspected of murdering basically a cousin of his, another Hatfield, Anderson Hatfield, who testified against the police chief on behalf of the, um, uh, the company because there were some people that were involved that were actual spies for the company that were embedded in Mate One. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was C.E. Lively, who was an undercover agent for the Baldwin Detective Agency, opened up a 
restaurant a couple months later, and he befriended the coal miners. He fed some of them for free, basically to get information. And Sid actually even admitted to him uh, through his testimony in trial that he uh, killed Testament to get him out of the way. He getting too friendly with the ball. Yeah, because he had always had a, a a fancy for the mayor's wife. So this was a lawless area. I mean, you know, again, it's kind of like the Hatfield and McCoys. There's this lawlessness. Uh, then you got the coal miners treating the miners horribly as far as the work condition and their living condition. You know, they literally owned the home they were in, uh, forcing them to basically stay. They they couldn't save money to leave. Uh, so you have this, and this this, if you will, was a, a microcosm. Uh, a catalyst of a much bigger picture because this was happening all across that region in West Virginia, which led to the actual Blair Mountain War. Can you talk about how that led and what was the catalyst? Because I think, um, again, our good police chief um, Hatfield is in the middle of that too, as far as the reason there was a lot of um, rallying on his uh, support because something happened to him on the steps of court. Yeah, going back to your point about how bad it was, when I was a young boy visiting my grandfather and grandmothers in Mingo and McDowell in Wyoming County, I saw firsthand how bad they lived. The dirt floors in the homes, the cardboard on the walls, cold, burn, just to stay warm and to cook with. If you didn't raise chickens, you didn't hardly eat. I mean, it was terrible. But with Sid, when he went to trial, um, the first time in Mingo County for the murder of the Baldwins, uh, the jury found him not guilty and was arrested men. So they knew they had to get him out of Mingo County with charges. So he was charged in McDowell County uh, for attempting to blow up a temple, mine temple, in, in Mohawk, West Virginia. So he knew he was going to be facing some trouble if he had to go to Welch, which is the capital where the courthouse is in McDowell County. And so what happened? Talk about what happened on the steps. August the 1st, his wife and his chief uh, deputy or his assistant chief of police, the Matewan, Ed Chambers, and his wife got on board the train from Matewan and rode it to Williamson. Williamson, I'm sorry. They got off the train and they started walking up the steps and they met two former Baldwin detectives, one of them being C.E. Lively, who was the restaurant owner, and a McDowell County deputy sheriff at the top of the steps. And there was an argument and then a shootout at the top of the steps. And the result was one dead Hatfield. The uh, police chief died on the steps. Uh, the widow saw that occur. How the town take to that in Matewan, as well as other towns in, that were feeling the uh, unfairness of um, what they perceived as unfairness? Yeah, the evidence showed that it was a shootout. Both Ed and Sid had 38 pistols, and they were firing at the men at the top of the stairs. Actually, the courthouse was hit five times. They found guns laying beside both of the men, and Sid actually had a 38, an extra 38 in his pocket with 21 bullets and a lucky, um, what was the uh, uh, rabbit foot in his pocket, which was unlucky for him that day. So <laughs> when, he, when his wife took the body back to Matewan, she said that 
he was shot without a gun and he was shot 24 times, which the autopsy showed he was shot six times, which he's still dead. It doesn't really matter how many times you're shot other than trying to influence a crowd or incite a crowd. And at the funeral, there was about 3,000 people came. Wow, that's more than a town. Yeah, they buried him right across the Tug River right there, uh, right across the Mayflower. So you had the Kentucky coal miners and the West Virginia coal miners and it was like a hornet's nest. They were really poking the hornet in the hornet's nest. And the young lady, uh, again, in her, I, I believe in the 20s, uh, Jessie, if I remember right, uh, Hatfield, she kind of exa- exaggerated a lot of the, the information. She kind of was the one that was, you know, if you will, poking the hornet's nest. Um, and then what occurred in terms of that anger, that volatile tension that's building to a volcanic eruption. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a lot of that came from her statement. Then the newspaper articles really jumped on it. It caused several hundred coal miners to go get their weapons. They hijacked some trains. They rode into the town of Macon and Logan County and then even Kentucky. They started to um, really uh, become hostile. They wanted demanding, you know, to join the union, and which caused the coal companies to become more aggressive with their enforcement. They hired the uh, sheriff of Logan County. Um, he actually hired some bomb makers to make bombs and paid uh, pilots to fly their airplanes and drop bombs on the coal miners. And this war went on for about five days, where the government had to send 500. I'm sorry, 5,000 troops down to squash the uh, violence. Yeah, this is amazing. And in finishing up with your book, you write, it is estimated that the week-long war at Blair Mountain caused over 60 casualties and hundreds of men were wounded. Nearly 1,000 miners were arrested for conspiracy, accessory to commit murder, treason against the state. You further talk about how it, it was the perfect storm and where the... The country was at such a turmoil in this one particular location. Um, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading your book, The Mate One Effect, Bloody Mingle. Can you talk a little bit about where people can find this book and uh, read about what we've talked about today? Yes, I do have an author blog, but the best place to go is straight to Amazon. Type in my full name, Oakley Dean Baldwin, and all 25 of uh, our books. My wife is actually uh, Dr. Doris Baldwin. She's my co-author. So we do this together. We do all our book signings and all our writing uh, as a team. But that's the easiest way without uh, just spewing out a bunch of uh, uh, website address uh, letters and numbers. And again, I cannot thank you enough, not just for being on our show, but for getting the facts, because it's really interesting. It's the, again, that, that movie mate one was very, you know, the, the union had the white hats, the, the coal company had the black hats, but it was a lot of back and forth. There's, there's bad, there's cops on both sides of the battle line. So again, thank you so much for taking the effort to put this out in print. Thank you for your career. And we thank you for joining us on Badge Boys. Thank you. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books. 
starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story, which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called the perfect blend of humor, heroism, and honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's Twisted But True books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss, and ultimately, survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Great uh, episode. Great to learn about that story. I know the audio wasn't that great for everybody, but uh, I encourage you to go back and really pay attention and then uh, even take your advice. I want to see that movie now because that's the one that seemed to It filled in a lot of blanks. Yeah, other than... It was um, um, black and white, you know. Yeah, so it was really good. And I love these older historians. They're just so matter of fact, like, this is what happened. It's how it happened. It's why it happened. And they tell their story. But they know so much. You know, it's they one do. of those things when you know so much about a topic, it's you don't tend to get, like, uh, up or down. He passionate. was just like, here it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it was uh, it was great to learn about that story. So now we move on to uh, one of my favorite Parts, which is therapy, the unknown cop talk that you're going to throw at me. Yeah, and we've had a lot of um, because last week we we went with a uh, a repeat that was perfect for the Fourth of July Independence Day, especially in light of the uh, the shooting at Highland Park. We had repeat, so we didn't have a uh, a chance for me and you to be in studio and have the cop talk. So some of these are a little old, but sadly they're also appropriately. Um, um, Spot on. The first one is embattled Uvalde school police chief resigns from city council after the, the feedback. And then as recently as today, or really last night, uh, the video came out of the hour and what, 17 minutes. And you actually saw uh, a condensed version of that video of what police didn't do right. Um, your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you, the video is very very difficult to watch because as officers uh former officers uh you just there's so many situations where it's easy to say look i wasn't there i can't and i'm not gonna there's no point in commenting on the you know some of the stuff that's so stupid like the guy who's an hour into it getting hand sanitizer and you know when they accuse one of the cops of well he's standing off the corner 
being on his phone. You don't know who he's texting, trying to let know what's going on. The main parts of the video, first of all, to back up, the the officer who had an AR-15 and had a shot at the guy, the suspect, before he entered the school, and he asked for permission. Now, there is not a police officer in this country. There is not a civilian in this country that when you see that level of deadly force being used, you do not need to ask for permission. So I sincerely hope that that officer has been fired. I sincerely hope he cannot sleep at night. This is just beyond the pale of not doing your job. Then the guys who go into the school, I think it's pretty clear they had several opportunities to at least, at the very least, distract this shooter and possibly neutralize him and could one two three or four of those officers lost their lives that day yes but you know what that is what you signed up for that is your job we are talking about school children there are so many reasons why this to me is worse than what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd we are talking about children in a classroom and to your first point Hands down, the police chief has to go to jail. This is not a, a, there is somewhere in there a very serious crime of dereliction of duty that resulted in the loss of life. The police chief has to be charged and at least let a jury decide his fate because you can't just have him be nominated to the city council two days later and then oh my god the backlash so well i won't do it and now he's just sitting at home like hey i did my job i mean this guy like doesn't even give a shit and i do believe after now how long has it been uh six eight weeks yeah uh i do believe that a lot of lives would have been saved that day uh i don't think 19 children would have died and sure a lot of them would have the guy you know he fired quite a few rounds but had had they distracted and neutralized the suspect had they got medical attention into them those classrooms right away i do think a lot of those children would be alive when you're talking about our children the most vulnerable of our society there is just simply no excuse and and it's it's just embarrassing that it wasn't one cop who like got scared and had fight or flight. It was a lot of cops. Yeah. I, I have to uh, say, um, you know, I think one of our best cop talks is when we disagree. I think that's kind of interesting. Sadly, I agree hundred percent. So uh, we don't have that, that back and forth that will go, but I will say this as it relates to the, the cop who had a shot and asked for permission I, I, at first, I like, no way, that's not true. That, that We'll find out when the dust settles. That did not happen. Barney Fife wasn't l- reaching in his pocket for his, his bullet. <laughs> that did bullet, not occur. Yeah. So when I found out that that absolutely did occur, I thought of a, a quote that one of our guests shared. And he said, you know, not everyone is meant to be a police officer. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that's a bad thing. It means that we need milkmen, too. And it's a good point. I don't know how many, sadly, should not have been on that police department, but we know quite a few. 
and starting at the top. And I'm with you, definitely, I believe he's culpable because of the um, um, dereliction and duty in terms of your duty is to protect and save lives. We have a um, protocol based on this. It's, it's widely known to the point where I wanted to say everyone knows it. I can't say that now because obviously Uvalde didn't know this, but we have a protocol that came out of, oh my God, how many years ago when I, when I first came on an apartment with um, you know, Columbine, you know, that, that protocol came out that you know, we have to do things different when it comes to an active yes. shooter. And th th at that time, it was new stuff. I'll be honest yes. with you. As an, as an old time cop, you know, it's like I was that cop that would run anyways and I would be disciplined for running in mm -hmm. to the battle, mm -hmm. but I would be disciplined. And, and I won't lie, I, I was. There was a situation where I was supposed to wait for my backup. I didn't. I ran in. I had a woman screaming. I'm running the F. Bring in. on that discipline. I'll wear it like a like Bring an it honor. On. I'll yes. wear it like an Bring honor. It. Absolutely. You're, you're going to discipline me for doing yeah, my job. Yeah. And that will be. Some, and having some courage that discipline will be framed yeah, i'm with you hilarious and, and so i had no problem with that and it was it wasn't a big deal it was just a written um but that was a different time frame we've learned a lot as technology as these as these events have become more and more prevalent we we learned very quickly after columbine and the smaller departments should have all been up to speed by now so the the mistakes of uvalde are so massive that we need to um, definitely go down the route in terms of uh, prosecution, in terms of that police chief. I'm 100% with you on that. I think it's there. I, I, wow, do I think it's there. I, and the only thing I do feel bad, and I know this is in contradiction to you, I guess, I feel bad for the officer who did not shoot. He shouldn't have been an officer. He should not have, he may have all the right intentions when he raised his hand and when he signed on the dotted line and became a cop. He should not have been a cop. There's not a cop in the world that could see a guy with a gun running to a school that wouldn't take him out, period. And, oh my God. So, but as a human being, how do you live with that? And I do feel bad for that human being. I don't feel bad for the cop. I feel bad for the human being because uh, that's on him. It is. How is it not on him? No, it, it's completely on him. And I'd like to agree with you in the sense that I want to feel bad for him as a human being. And you're right. He he definitely shouldn't have been a cop. He clearly didn't have what it takes. But my heart is going to continue to remain with all those children that are in coffins right now. Good and point. And Darren, I'm sorry. Good, no, you're right. Good this, point. If this guy can't sleep, if he kills himself in a year, I, there is not an I – don't, I just don't have an ounce of care – for a guy who witnesses somebody shooting into a school and then asks for permission to... Re and returning fire means somebody shooting at me. This is not... This is so beyond the pale it of is. like what... It's worse than thinking? Barney Fife. It, it's worse it, than it Barney is, Fife. It is so horrible. And they just need to start over. I mean, disband... Uh, oh, yeah. Every everybody, out, everybody out there who wants to get mad at me, go ahead. But let's start over. Disband the Uvalde Police Department. Oh, I think everyone's have the, with you, brother. Have the county take over, yep. have the state take yep. over. And in time, when you are ready to create a small-town police force that is just as well-trained e and equipped and prepared to respond to something like this, then you could rebuild that police department. But for now, demolish the school, get rid of the police department, punish the people who need to be punished. Chief. Ex-chief. Yeah, the chief definitely needs to go to jail. And uh, and then hopefully at least start the healing process for the families. 
And then we can then look at this and evaluate on so many levels and learn from it. Because mm-hmm. if, if this all happened and we don't learn anything and there's another Uvalde in some small little Bodunk town in Arkansas says, uh, then we've learned nothing and we're to blame. Exactly. Hey, great, great dialogue on that. The uh, next headline, I'll just do one more. Uh, and this is more about a trend that we're seeing. Uh, the headline, three police officers killed in Kentucky by suspect with a rifle. Uh, three law enforcement officers were killed and five wounded in eastern Kentucky when a man with a rifle opened fire on police attempting to serve a warrant. Police took the 49-year-old Lance, I won't even say his freaking name, into custody late this, that particular night after an hours-long standoff at the home in the small town in the hills of Appalachia. Um, not just this one. But we're seeing a trend of people, and I, I want to know what you think in terms of, is it me, or is this an uh, uptick of violence where before they might have been able to handle this, but now the person is come, you know, that wants to end it all definitely wants to take police officers with them, more so than ever, in my opinion. You know, from what I know about this story, and I'm very good friends with a gentleman who is an ex-Kentucky Kentucky state trooper and is now a uh, doctor doing mental health things. He's just an, an incredible individual. And unfortunately, he knew some of these guys. A lot of people don't know that Kentucky's not a state. It's a commonwealth. It is a commonwealth. And the, the, way, they, the way they are set up, a lot of agencies overlap, help each other. A lot of people have to work alone. So the the blunt answer, is there an uptick in violence? Yes, there's a clear uptick in violence and ambushes against police throughout the country. We're seeing that with how many are getting shot, killed, assaulted, all that. I think this is one of those situations that needs to be learned from in every academy across the country, every training scenario that, you know, we go through continuing education, continuing training every year to learn, and it should be current events but when you learn about this story i think this is just one of those old-fashioned this guy knew he was wanted he knew at some point they were coming for him and he was committed ready and he had guns set up in different locations that were ready all he had to do was walk up to him start pulling the trigger so he was ready for the fight and, and wanting it, it. And what, what one of the biggest dangers about being a police officer, and, and this does not coincide with today. This has always been the case. Whether you're walking up on a traffic stop, you don't know who's in the car, or serving a warrant, you are a lot of times dealing with people who are so committed to not going back to prison. Like, I'm not sure this guy necessarily wanted to kill several police officers. I, he, he wanted to because he did, and he had no problem doing it. What, what I mean by that is I don't think that he, he didn't leave his house going in search of no. cops to ambush. He had his home fortified, and he was like, you know what? I'm ready when you come for me, and the day came. And he did what he thought he needed to do to... It amazed me that people think they're actually going to like continue to get away with it or something. But he was just simply, I'm not going back to prison. I, he knew what he was wanted for. It was some bad stuff. But when you look at, like one of the guys who died, this heartbreaking, seven, day, 
seven days before serving that warrant, there's a picture of him smiling as he got promoted to captain. Now, what in the hell is a captain doing as the second of two officers on scene serving a warrant? So, again, the, some of these states and smaller towns, that's the predictable. Like, you know, here in Phoenix, you know, Darren, when I worked homicide and I was like, this is a bad, bad dude. And not only do I know he committed this murder, he's, he's possibly linked to these other things. He's got a felony warrant for this. You call the SWAT team and these individuals, it's all they do all day, every day is train, 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 train. Yeah, I would not, have a go-to detective. Not everybody, yeah, not everybody has that luxury. That's why part of why I chose I mean, I love my hometown. I love Phoenix. But why I chose the larger department was because if you need help or experts, they are, there's a plethora of them. So it, it, it's heartbreaking to see what goes on in these smaller states and communities. And uh, what's terrible is, I mean, the whole state of Kentucky is reeling from the deaths of these mm. officers. And the ones who are injured, uh, I mean, again, it, it's easy to be like, oh, they're going to survive. That doesn't always mean a good thing and uh it's just it's terrible but i hope that from here on out it is talked about it is trained in every agency every academy across the country like look this is real this just happened in june of 2022 let's talk about it let's debrief it let's dissect it and let's figure out why it happened and how if we are in a similar situation, we would simply do it better. So God bless everybody in the Commonwealth, uh, the suffering, the families. It's, it's just incredible. And again, next week, uh, we're going to be talking about the death of another officer. We're going to be talking about probably another mass shooting. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable the twilight zone that we live in right now. So um, with that, we will be right back for a little more of an uplifting segment so come on back more stories inside guests and true blue humor coming up on batch boys we'll be back right after this during these challenging days we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten and that's what the arizona fallen hero memorial riders organization is all about each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back, everybody. That was a, a compelling cop talk, as always. I love uh, hearing your uh, thoughts on these headlines, uh, Jason, especially since you don't even know they're coming. You know, you have no idea. We don't talk That's about this before. So, yeah, is that that candid nature of cop talk. They're compelling, candid. Uh, they're awesome. But having said all that, my favorite part is listening to you talk about heroic headline, which is at the heart of why we do what we do. Uh, this is a great heroic headline this week. Uh, teen being hailed as the hero after saving a police officer and three others after a car plunged into a river in Mississippi. You want to talk about one of the most dangerous things you can do? Just a couple weeks ago, three grown men 
jumped into a river in Wisconsin to save a child. They saved that child, and all three of them drowned and lost their lives. It is incredibly dangerous to do a water rescue, especially when you're not trained. And we're talking about we're talking about a teenager here. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. scary animal. Yeah, anyway, Corian Evans, 16 years old, came to the aid of three female victims after he saw a car drive off of Interstate 10 and right into the Pascagoula River. The crash took place at 2.30 a.m. So now you're talking about pitch dark on Sunday. Moss Point is a small city in Jackson County. It's less than 30 miles east of Biloxi, pretty close to the Alabama border. Roll Tide, by the way. The vehicle floated about 20 feet, then began to sink, but police said the three occupants managed to get out of the vehicle and onto its roof. Dorian said, I was just like, I can't let none of these folks die. They need to get out of the water. He's a Pascagoula High School student, and he said, I just started to get them. I wasn't even thinking about nothing else. I just went to get them. The teen also rescued a police officer named Gary Mercer, who responded to the scene to help. And according to the release, Mercer had difficulty swimming after swallowing too much water after an occupant of the car he was helping to shore began panicking. That's one of That's the dangers the part. is yes. when the, the, the victim panics and they'll drown you. Yeah, they will. Said, I turn around, I see this police officer, he's drowning, he's going underwater saying, help. So I went over there, I went and grabbed the police officer. Again, this kid is <laughs> 16 years old. The driver of the vehicle told police she was following her GPS and did not realize she was approaching the water. Well, I think you need to sue the GPS company then if they're not telling you where you're going. I doubt that part's true. Uh, no other injuries were reported though. And Moss Point Police Chief Brandon Ashley commended Evans for his bravery and selflessness he displayed by risking his own safety to help people in danger. If he had not assisted, the situation would have turned out much more deadly and differently. And on Tuesday, the teen and the police officer received certificates of commendation from the city. We are proud of the young man for having the courage to forget about himself and jump into the water. Mayor Billy Knight said it's not often enough that you see people put others above themselves. Somebody in Mississippi step up and pay for this kid's college education for all four years. That's the least we can do for him. And I want to thank his parents. They, they, oh, they raised a good kid. They raised kid. a good Thank you. And I love his statement. I didn't think. I just, just went and did. got him. Yeah. I, that, yeah. You talk about awesome fight or flight. Yeah. I just went and got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a Superman, you have a Supergirl, you have a Super Teen right there. Years old. Yeah, amazing. Uh, as uh, great as that, we do have a stupid suspect. Excellent. And uh, this is one of my favorite parts our stupid suspect story. Uh, this particular stupid suspect, uh, this has a good happy ending, I think. Oh. Yeah. A burglar entered a, if you're going to enter any uh, residence, you may want to think twice about this particular residence in Texas. As uh, the armed burglar with a gun uh, likely thought he had upper hand when, when he went inside. But he was almost dead wrong as a homeowner was also armed uh, after all it's texas uh kevin mitchell gonzalez learned the hard way why you don't mess with a texan a 20 year old <laughs> hispanic male entered the home and was thwarted by the homeowner who wasn't going to let him get away with, without a fight as the stroke ensued gonzalez pulled a gun but things still wouldn't work out in his favor because uh, uh the homeowner um fought over the gun a violent struggle and during the fight 
the homeowner was able to pull the gun away. Uh, the shot had police officers dispatched to the home for unknown trouble as shots fired because shots did ring out. Um, when officers arrived, they found the homeowner uninjured. Uh, thankfully, the, the, the shot that rang out missed him during the struggle. But that couldn't be said, the same couldn't be said for uh, the suspect who took a brutal beating. I'm now handing uh, the picture to uh, my cohort in crime here, Jason, of the photo of the... Uh, oh, that the, is beautiful. It's a beautiful mugshot. He got shot. his ass beat. Yeah, Robin, any, any statements on your side there? That's a good photo. He looks yeah, pretty. It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. It's a little a pretty, munch. Pretty picture. Yeah, uh, he took a brew. Don't As screw say, a with Texans. It's worth a thousand words, and uh, this mugshot, you got to take a look at it. Uh, Feature badly battered, bloody, bruised, and swollen face. It's just awesome. Uh, and then again, this is a stupid suspect because uh, he thought he could show the gun and just, you know, win, win the fight, if you will. Uh, during his arrest, uh, officers found 18 Lorzorit, L- L- I'm only going to pronounce it, some type of weird pill uh, in plastic baggies in the suspect pants, which resulted in additional charges of uh, dangerous drugs. He was charged with criminal trespass with a deadly weapon, possession of a controlled substance, and he was taken to jail. And again, if you get a, a chance to look at this mug, uh, definitely look at it. Kevin Mitchell Gonzalez, 28-year-old Hispanic out of Texas. You are a dumb shit. And you paid for it. I Instant it. karma, baby. And that is The Stupid Suspect. And that brings us to our inspirational message. And there's no better person to read it than someone who absolutely gives us inspiration every time I talk to him. Uh, This is just inspirational because it's a police officer doing an everyday thing and bringing a life into this world that hopefully is going to grow up with some deep appreciation for it. And this happened in the great city of Atlanta, and they have had their share of problems, so I'd love to highlight something good. Atlanta police officer Renato Anaya helped to deliver a baby while on the job over the weekend. The officer said he was on patrol around midnight last Saturday when he was flagged down at a gas station. Officer Anaya can be heard saying in his police body cam video, we're at 1415 Cascade. If you can roll fire and rescue, I don't think the lady is going to make it all the way to Grady Hospital because she was having a baby at the time. Crowning. It, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it is not something that he trained for, and it's not something that he was expecting to do that day. Uh, but when the soon-to-be mother started to go into labor and couldn't make it to the hospital, he had to step in to help. Officer Anaya said, we had a white SUV flash his headlights, blow the horn, and the gentleman said, hey, my wife's in labor. Could you guys please escort us to the hospital? However, it seemed like it was too late for that. So the officer, sworn to protect and serve, now had to deliver a baby and the body cam video uh i gotta admit i don't want to watch this (laughs) captured the miraculous delivery moment officer anaya said i removed my raincoat i saw the baby's head was exposed i put my right hand by the baby's head told the lady to give a push and she pushed the baby out it's a little boy he was breathing crying and healthy and officer anaya was filled with emotion i just said to myself I'm going to have to deliver this baby right now. He said in his 20 years on the job, he never thought he would end up delivering a baby. He safely brought a life into this world. God bless that mother and father. And I hope 
that they raise that baby knowing, you know what, this is what people in uniform do. This is what protecting and serving means because that is that that is true service that is just very inspirational and i love to share those stories so uh listen i love to say every week be safe uh it's getting to the point of try to be safe keep your head on a swivel there's a there's a lot of bad going on right now um but the only reason evil wins darren is because good people are not standing up and doing enough to Fight back. So fight for yourself. Fight for others. But don't lose uh, your head. As, hug your family and realize yeah, what's important. In yes, life. please, please, please. Uh, be grateful for every day. Cherish every day. Turn off the cable news. Shut out the politicians and just love who you love and grow your own garden in your own backyard. Love God bless all of you, and we'll see you next week. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.